Welcome, my friends, to the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. I am the Tomb's proprietor, Headstone P. Gravely, and here I are two captive hosts, Shrey Lawson and James Hickson. Welcome back, Tomb Believers, to Tomb of Ideas, the first Tomb of Ideas of fall. And you know, there's nothing better than a nice, cool fall day, a warm cup of apple cider in your hand. It's just, mmm, can't beat it, I tell you what. Where, where did you get apple cider? Don't ask questions you don't want to answer to. Oh, James. The color's right. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God. What have we become? Podcasters, my friend. Podcasters. So, (laughs) you are listening to Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. My name's Trey Lawson. And I'm James Hickson. And we're here to talk all about the wild, crazy world of Marvel monsters and spooky comics. And improvised homemade cider. Sure, we we can maybe post a recipe to the, the to the Twitter. Um, but I think now is just is an especially appropriate time for uh, our sort of purpose in podcasting because we are officially entering spooky season. Ooh, pretty spooky, eh, kids? <laughs> and we've got two great uh, books to talk about today. One magazine with several stories. Uh, it's it's a, the latest installment in Tales of the Zombies. Some not so great. But we've also... Well, you know, with that many stories, they can't all be winners. Sometimes none of them can be winners. <laughs> but we also have a brand new installment of Man-Thing, Woo-hoo! which we usually look forward to. So that that's a good Gerber thing. goodness. Gerber goodness. Exactly. <laughs> but... Before we start talking about those comics, we should probably take a little detour into the hottest segment in comics podcasting. We're talking Hellstrom Watch. (laughs) And it uh, the 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 ticker machine is going going wild. It's it's been far too long since we've had a Hellstrom Watch, and because of that, there's a lot of things to cover. First off, a lot. yeah, most relevant to the title of the segment, we should be getting more news on Hellstrom and its its fellow Hulu survivor, Modoc, uh, later in October. Both of those shows have been scheduled for virtual panels as part of Hulu's presentation at New York Comic Con. So, uh, so we should be seeing more details there. For now, all we've got really is uh, they, they put out a logo for Modoc which is really just, like, the title in a stylized font. But but that confirms that it somehow still exists. So so we've got that. Um, don't really know what else to say about that, except it is, it is wild to me that of all the shows that Hulu was developing, the two that have survived are Hellstrom and Modoc. Also, there's a teaser. Oh, is there a teaser there's now? There's a Hellstrom teaser, yeah. Oh, we, we watched that. Was that part of the, the previous Comic-Con panel? I can't remember. Or is this a new yeah. one? Yeah. We we talked about one when SD 
when, when uh, San Diego Comic-Con was happening online. Okay, so yeah, this is the same thing. You're right. Okay. It, it's okay. the most generic looking thing ever. Right. Like, it, it looks like it could be like a spinoff of Supernatural or something. Which surprisingly is not getting a spinoff. Like, yeah. they're ending it. it. They've tried it several yeah, times. They, there's like three attempted spinoffs of Supernatural, I think. And none of them really catch on, which is, again, surprising because it's been on for 15 years. Yeah, yeah. And the 15th season was supposed but, to be the last season, but apparently, because of COVID, it might not be. Mm, well, because they're probably cutting their episodes or something. Yeah. Like, so they're, they're going to they're gonna figure out a new way to do a finale because they weren't able to make their grand finale to the series. Yeah. They could always do like a, a TV movie or something. That's that's a popular way these days of <laughs> resolving things. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, a HBO Max exclusive, probably. Right. Yeah. I mean, hey, worked for Deadwood. There you go. But uh, yeah, so we don't have any actual news on Hellstrom or Modoc, but we have an announcement that news could be coming because the New York Comic Con is in October uh, and being held virtually. No news, but possible news of news. Yes, which is news. I knew it. Uh, next is, uh, there's an interview with J.K. Simmons, uh, where he talks about, first he talks about the decision to change J. Jonah Jameson's appearance for Far From Home. Okay. That, that, uh, basically, he wanted to basically play the same character that he played in the Raimi Spider-Man movies, but the Marvel producers wanted it to be clear that he was not exactly the same character. And and apparently the compromise was him having no hair. Boo hiss. I don't like it. Give me give me all uh, at least he says he says that's the excuse he was given, but he also suspects that the time constraints of his cameo were such that they did not have time to make a wig. That's more likely. Which is upsetting because uh, I like old Bristletop. But he also says that uh, if it makes you feel better, you can just assume that uh, J. Jonah Jameson was wearing a toupee the whole time. <laughs> and that's the toupee somebody would buy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, more interestingly, in terms of uh, news, is Simmons also suggests not, not only does J. Jonah Jameson have a future in the Spider-Man movies, but, and this is... A direct quote, there is one more JJJ appearance in the can. And from what I'm hearing, there's a plan for yet another one. So, in the can usually means already filmed. Yeah, that that would be my understanding of it. (laughs) Yeah, so so that's interesting. And before we started recording, I said I had a theory on this. James, do you want to hear my theory? Yeah, let's hear it. We're going to see something from the the Bugle in Let There Be Carnage. God damn it, you actually made me choke on my cider. Oh. <laughs> there are little pulpy bits at the bottom. How'd that happen? <laughs> because Sony's goal is to tie these movies together, right? <sighs> Unfortunately, so so we so we've got Michael Keaton in Morbius. I would I would not be surprised if Jameson makes an appearance in Venom Two. Let there be carnage. Breathe in, breathe out. Count the ten before responding. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, oh. 
I am fully aware because that Sony wants to have their own little cinematic universe, and I am I am powerless to stop them from doing so. The Sony the the Sony universe of Marvel movies. Oh God damn it to hell! <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I think you are, are actually intentionally trying to antagonize me because ah. Actually, not you. Sony. Sony is intentionally trying to antagonize me. <laughs> this this is all personal, right? Yeah. What was it? A year ago? Now that uh, they they made me think that Spider Man was leaving um, the right. MCU, and now they're right. just loading up all this crap on us. Just mm. yep. Uh, sticking in the the Sony universe of Marvel movies for just a moment. We, must. Uh, we also have uh, uh, an interview with Olivia Wilde who is rumored to be directing Spider-Woman. Okay. She's definitely direct she's definitely directing something that's in the Sony Marvel brand. Mm-hmm. It's rumored by by it's been suggested by outlets that I trust that it's probably Spider-Woman. Okay. But she in an interview with Entertainment Weekly hinted that Kevin Feige is somehow involved in her production. Okay, very interesting. Yeah. Um, which, it could, it could mean several things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, on the one hand, if it's closely connected to the act, to the main Spider-Man stuff, like, that could be why he's involved, to make sure that nothing contradicts stuff they have planned. Um, but, it could also be sort of more general than that, because, in addition to being president of Marvel Studios... Feige is now chief creative officer for Marvel Comics, Marvel Television, and Marvel Animation. So he's not just the Marvel Studios guy. He's also the guy in charge of all of the other rights that they don't directly control. Like, he's the point guy for Sony and Universal and all the other places that still have Marvel properties. Okay. So so what, what, that, what it means for him to be involved may not be as exciting as we're hoping, but we can still hope. Oh, yeah. I'm definitely hoping right now just <laughs> I, I i like having one concrete universe universe and it not getting muddled and although i'm actually kind of excited for the for the dc multiverse stuff that's yeah interesting well but that's like again that's sort of having your cake and eating it too it's anything is possible but it's all under one roof that's true you know like it's all one production company yeah, and we have precedent for a multiverse. Like, the closest, the closest Marvel could get to that will be Multiverse of Madness, the Doctor Strange sequel. True. And Marvel What If. Uh, and, and Marvel What If, yes. Yes, which both of which sound very exciting. There's a rumor, actually, with, uh, with Multiverse of Madness that they could be recruiting actors who were previously supposed to play Marvel characters but didn't. <laughs> To play versions of those characters. Oh, uh, so wait, we're gonna get um, what's his name from the office playing Captain America? Potentially. Uh, the the example that I saw given was that they might try to get Tom Cruise to play a, a variation on Tony Stark. Because he in the late nineties, yeah, early two thousands, he was supposed to play Tony. Yeah, Stark. Yeah, he was almost a new line Tony Stark, if I remember correctly. Yeah, it was when it was right yeah. with new line, and the the project got pretty far with him attached to it for yeah. a long time. Yeah, um, and, and that was sort of the last attempted version before Favreau took over. Yeah, yeah, basically it lapsed and went 
back to Marvel, and they're like, okay, we're just going to do this on our own. Yeah. And Well, al- alongside what, Paramount? Was it Paramount? Paramount. The deals with Paramount, yeah, for distribution. Yeah, because yeah, they, they couldn't finance all of that themselves. No. At that point. No. They didn't have that Disney money yet. Yet. But <laughs> how quickly after, uh, what, what was it, like, was it after Captain America that Disney bought Marvel? Something like, it, it was, it was Definitely by the time the first Avengers movie happened, yeah. it had already gone through. Yep. And everybody's like, well, Marvel just made back their money on... Sorry, Disney just made back their money on buying Marvel with one movie. Right. Because um, that, that was sort of the tricky thing with Avengers, was there were still these lingering bits of deals with Paramount and with Universal. Mm-hmm. Because Universal did the Hulk movies. Yeah. And still and still technically have the rights to solo Hulk yep. movies. Um. Which is why we've never seen uh, Mark Ruffalo in a movie by himself. So, it actually looks like 2020 is the first year where we've not gotten a new Marvel movie in a while. Because um, it's looking like Black Widow is being delayed until 2021. Yeah, yeah. Um, Which, I'm not surprised. I'm a little disappointed. It, It would be nice if... There was some sort of VOD option. Yes, something something like what they did with Mulan, which I understand that the numbers for Mulan are mixed. Like the the streaming numbers are pretty good, but the theatrical numbers out of China, which they were really hoping for, uh, were not good at all. Well, okay, here's the dealio. A lot of the creatives behind the scenes for Mulan were not Chinese, right? And from what I understand. It leads to problems with the portrayal mm-hmm. and the movie itself. I've not seen it. I I made the choice not to drop thirty bucks on um, Mulan. Yeah, same. A movie same. I really had no interest <clears throat> in seeing in the first place. I'm not. A... I if I'm gonna watch a westernized version of that story, I'm probably gonna watch the one where Eddie Murphy plays a dragon. Yeah, right. I, I'm not interested. I'm really not interested in these live action adaptations of. The animated films, because for one thing, I'm kind of frightened of 2D animation dying. Right, um, right. But... Yeah, it, it's sort of a... I don't know. Like, it seems like it's an insult to the art form to say, well, now we're going to make a real version of this movie. Yeah, yeah. It's like, there was nothing wrong with the original. Right. So... Like, Sleeping Beauty is one of the most gorgeous animated films of all time. And nothing against Angelina Jolie, but... I didn't really need to see it told from Maleficent's point of view. Uh, don't tell my wife that. She loves Maleficent. But yeah, it's just... <laughs> I, I, well, and Maleficent's one of my sister's favorite villains, so I, I get that. Yeah, I but. just... I didn't need this movie. Now, I yeah. would drop 30 bucks in a hot second on a Black Widow VOD um, mm-hmm. right now. Sure. Like, if, if you know, if, if they told me that Black Widow is available on VOD right now. I would stop the podcast and go watch that movie. We'll come back later and record the rest of this. <laughs> sure, sure. <clears throat> but I, um, but I understand the criticisms a lot of people have, where you know we want Nat- Natasha's first solo outing to be on the big screen. Yeah, especially when it's been such a long time coming. Yeah, it's just, uh, and, and that, and that she sort of has been the perennial sidekick in Marvel movies. You know, it's always alongside Tony Stark or alongside Hawkeye or whatever. 
I suppose. I suppose. So I, I, I see both sides of it. I, I wish there was some sort of. I, honestly, I am not all that optimistic that like spring 2021 will be a whole lot safer than where we are right now. Hopefully, we'll have vaccine by then. But I, I, I think it will be end of next year before it has enough distribution for me to feel safe going into a theater. So yeah. we'll, we'll see. I think the current estimation is that 50% um, of the population needs the vaccine and only about 3% availability. So. Yeah. 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 Um, so, again, I'm not, I'm not optimistic about getting to see anything in a theater for a while. Mm-hmm. That said... Maybe I'll be able to hit up a drive-in. That would be cool. Oh yeah, drive-in sounds fun. Um, but uh, oh, I, I didn't get to finish. Uh, uh, Miss Marvel for Disney Plus has directors, um, including the directing team behind Bad Boys for Life. Interesting. I, I honestly, I need to read more Miss Marvel. Like I'm, I'm familiar with the character mostly through crossovers and team ups. Yeah, I've not read a whole lot of her solo stuff. I've. I think the only stuff I read is like the Secret Wars stuff, which when mm, she mm-hmm. crossed over in Secret Wars, I'm just not too familiar with her either. But she's a featured character in the new Avengers uh, video game, so I, I guess that suggests something about the the wider audience they're expecting to to reach with her. Yeah, so that's cool. Um, also, uh, there's an interview with Chris Hemsworth uh, from this past month where he says that. Thor Love and Thunder is not the end for his character. That he doesn't foresee quitting the role of Thor anytime soon. I don't see why he would. He seems pretty comfortable in the character. He's he's finally found a groove with the character that he seems to really enjoy. Mm-hmm. I think for a while there, they were trying to make him be serious Shakespearean actor, Thor. Yeah, well, they, they were trying to make him the Jack Kirby Thor. And, and at some point, I guess they realized... That they shouldn't. The, the, the Jack Kirby Thor doesn't translate to film to the MCU particularly well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so instead, what he's landed on is something more like Marvel's Hercules. Yeah, which is fine. I, Marvel's Hercules is an awesome character. Oh, he is. So I am not mad about that. <laughs> I, I'm a little upset that you know that they when they actually if they ever get around to bringing Hercules into the MCU, that right. it's kind of like well we've already used his personality. Where are we gonna have a super serious Hercules? But anyway, uh, Chris Hemsworth, uh, what he actually says, he was asked if Love and Thunder would be the end for him playing the role. He says, quote, are you crazy? I'm not going into any retirement period. Thor is far too young for that. He's only 1,500 years old. It's definitely not a film that I say goodbye to for this brand. At least I hope so. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad to hear it. As long as he feels comfortable playing them, go for it. Mm -hmm. And like the only other alternative that I can think of would have been to do some sort of handoff to Jane Foster as Thor. And I just haven't gotten the impression from any of the interviews that I've seen that Natalie Portman wants a franchise. No, no. So, like, I think she was willing to come back for a one-off because she wanted to work with Taika Waititi. Who wouldn't, honestly? Like, right, right. Taika Waititi is just amazing. Um, so, yeah, so that's the Thor news. Um... Let's see. Oh, yes. Also, um, there's a new member of the Hulk family. Oh, you know, uh, condoms aren't 100%, especially when dealing <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> uh, Now cast in the Disney Plus She-Hulk series. Oh, oh that. We've okay, got, yeah, sorry. 
Right. No, I don't know where you were headed, <laughs> but uh, I was thinking about I was thinking about orphan black lead actress Tatiana Maslany playing She Hulk. Yeah, she is. It's true. Which is awesome. Yes, it is. Uh, I don't know what else to say about that except that she's kind of perfect casting. Uh, for one thing, uh, if you've never seen Orphan Black, it's a character. It, it's a show where Tatiana Maslany plays like eight different characters that are all clones of each other, but with drastically different personalities. So if anyone can capture the distinction between She-Hulk and human Jennifer Walters, it would be her. And we're assuming that She-Hulk's gonna be like CGI all to all get out. Probably, probably, because uh, I don't know that she has the the stature to play She-Hulk without some sort of visual effects enhancements. Which is fine. Yeah, I mean, it's what the... It, it, there's already the precedent for that with, with the Ruffalo Hulk, so... And they've done a fairly good job of... With, with, the, with the MCU Hulk giving him just enough of Ruffalo's features to remind you that they're the same character, that Banner and Hulk are the same person. Although, for a while there... They did the Lou Ferrigno thing, right? They they did, yeah. Like he, he they were making him look they, for a while. They were basically just making him look like Comics Hulk. Um, and, and I think Ferrigno was doing the voice for a while. Uh, but I think in the most recent outings, Ruffalo has done the motion capture and and provided voice work. Okay. Well, part of that, I think I think Ferrigno is getting a bit up in years, and maybe. Um. Moving on, uh, Jonathan Majors has been cast. He's uh, actor recently getting a lot of attention for Lovecraft Country on HBO. He has been cast in a major role for Ant-Man 3. Ooh. And, and it is strongly suggested... Ant-Man 3, Ant that... Carter. <laughs> uh, it's strongly suggested that Majors will be playing a version of supervillain Kang the Conqueror. <laughs> You know, um, one of the first Avengers comics I ever bought was a Kang comic. Yeah. And it did not make a lick of sense. Oh, that's the, that's because <laughs> the one with the, with the freaking War Machine and Thunderstrike and U.S. Agent in it. Right. It, it's the one where the entire Avengers team are palette swaps. Ugh. Uh, but, but it's weird. That was my introduction to the Avengers and my introduction to Kang. <laughs> okay, my introduction to the Avengers was definitely like the trading cards. Okay, fair, yes. fair. I did have some of those, yeah. yes. I think I had an Avengers comic where they threw a dinner party, or like a party of some sort, and like a white-collar affair, and Doctor Doom crashes it. See, that's, that just sounds delightful. It, I would read it, that. For me, I remember what it was. Now, this is the weird version of Avengers that has like Captain America, um, Sandman, um, mm. Spider-Man, this, I think, was on the like, team Doctor, at the point. It, 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 is this during, like, the Doctor Druid years? No, it was after Doctor Druid, I think. Like, Okay. Because it seemed like he was on the team forever. He, he, he I bet, was. I bet Jack of Hearts was there, though. I think you're right. I think Jack of Hearts was there. <laughs> and I think Monica Rambeau was there. Fair. Speaking yeah. of Monica Rambeau... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, there's a WandaVision trailer. Yeah, there is. Yeah, there is. And, and y'all, this show looks wild. Oh, so uh, I'm sure by now everyone listening has seen it because according to the numbers that I've seen floating around the internet, everybody watched it. <laughs> <laughs> well, they showed it during the Emmys, Trey. 
everybody watches right, the right, but, a, but apparently it got like Avengers Endgame trailer numbers. <laughs> well, people are starved for Marvel right now. Let's be honest. Like this is we've true. been saying it on the show. And, and and we're really close to a premiere. Like this show is supposed to air in December. <laughs> and and this trailer proves that they are ready to premiere. Like they have like they have the show ready to go. Yep. L- effects looks f- look finished. Oh, it just looks. Yep. Mm, yes, please now, please. Yes, I I hope the whole show is exactly as weird as this trailer is. Yes, like I I, I just like it bears out a lot of my theories about the show so far. Mm-hmm. We've talked we've talked about it on the show, which I won't get into because we're getting closer. I don't want to spoil things for people, but right, it just oh, and the kitchen looks just like the kitchen from the Dick Van Dyke show tray. <laughs> oh yeah, no, the attention to detail is great. And and the way it tra- the way it transitions through like eras of sitcoms. Yes, I mean that can't be coincidental. Right, right. And and they've got uh oh what's her name um uh Deborah Jo Rupp the the mom from that seventies show. Yeah. Yep. Um, <clears throat> and and of course this is the show you mentioned Monica Rambeau uh who will be appearing uh. A younger version of the character was in Captain Marvel. We're going to see an, an aged-up version since we're like in present day instead of the '90s. Um, Kat Dennings is reprising her role of Darcy from the Thor movies. Yep. Uh, Randall Park is reprising his role as Jimmy Woo from Ant Man and the Wasp. Uh, we, we've it's got a great cast, and it looks like it's tying together loose ends in the MCU that we didn't even know were loose. Um. The actress playing her in in Monica Rambeau in WandaVision is Tiana Paris, and she is yes. actually a graduate of the high school I teach at. That is very cool. Yep. Um, she's also very good in uh, Chirac, the Spike Lee movie, hmm. uh, which came out several years ago, and is uh, it's an adaptation of Aristophanes' Lysistrata, set in Chicago's South Side. <laughs> Okay. But but so I've seen her in stuff before. She's very good. She was also on Mad Men. Okay. Um, but yeah, WandaVision. I, I, people are going to be dissecting that trailer for the next two months. Obviously. It's just... And, and there's there's a lot to dissect. Also, we have nothing else to do. R- right. That, that too. And, and I'm sure that it's going to lead into, in some way, uh, Multiverse of Madness. Since it's already been confirmed that... Uh, that Scarlet Witch will be appearing in that as well. Okay. Now I wonder because it does it did flip with um, Falcon and Winter Soldier as far as premiere dates go. I'm wondering True. if there are threads that had to have to be dropped now because we're not getting Falcon and Winter Soldier first. I don't think so. In part because the Marvel release timeline and continuity timeline are already like not the same thing okay so i don't know that it's the end of the world if other stuff comes out between wandavision and multiverse of madness i have a feeling they're kind of segmenting the characters into their own separate stories for a while anyway so i doubt anything that's in falcon and winter soldier will have much bearing on stuff that's in wandavision and vice versa makes sense um now Loki could be another story because Loki seems to be involved in weird timeline multiversal stuff too. Oh, uh, Loki! But we'll see. I forgot Loki was coming <laughs> out. 
Yeah, yeah, supposedly. Um, Someday. It was originally supposed to be out early 2021. We'll see if that still happens. Probably not. Although they seem to have shot stuff for it, so... Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Um, and Falcon and Winter Soldier is back in production, so it should release sometime maybe next year. Fingers crossed. Um, yeah, uh, Falcon Winter Soldier is listed as filming. Loki is still listed as filming. Um, what If is listed as in production. So... Hmm. But anyway, I, what so if? I think that <laughs> I am looking forward to what if that's going to be so fun. Much so, but I think that more than covers it for this supersized installment of Hellstrom Watch. Yep. So we will take a quick break, quick, quick break, and <laughs> we'll be right back with our coverage of Tales of the Zombie number five right after these messages. Hi, I'm one of the High Priests of Conchu Ray, and I have the sacred privilege of providing you, the loony listener, with a podcast honouring Marvel's very own Moon Knight. So join me and a host of others at Into the Night, a Moon Knight podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, or support the show by becoming a Patreon member. Into the Night, a Moon Knight podcast. It's time to get your Conchu on. From Haiti, land of the voodoo, comes the most infamous cult of all, Bela Lugosi as Murder Legendre. I see death. Master of the undead damned, the sinister power behind the white zombie. Zombies. Yes. They are my servants. This soul killer takes men from their graves to be his slaves. His instruments of terror. And now this fiend plots to possess a woman. Captive in the borderland between life and death. Her brain drained of the life spark. The white zombie obeys the unholy commands of her demon master. As mindless creatures carry out his cursed will, Terror explodes in horror and heartquake. Zombie! Allez, Allez! Never eyes so evil 
Never powers so potent. Never magic so black. Bela Dracula Lugosi. As the master of the white zombie. Welcome back to Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. Our first comic for today is the magazine Tales of the Zombie, number five. Cover date is May 1974. Our editor is Roy Thomas. And our first story is Palace of Black Magic, written by Steve Gerber, art by Pablo Marcos, and letters by Alan Kupperberg. Having used Simon Garth as his instrument of revenge against Mr. Six, Philip Bliss digs a grave for Simon Garth so that he may finally have peace. Bliss then returns the car he borrowed from Steve Bergen and Gene Gretsch, but the two young men decide to follow him to find out where he lives. However, Philip never makes it home, as he is attacked by a group of masked men. Steve and Gene try to help, but they are overpowered, and the attackers escape with Philip's voodoo charm, the Amulet of Dambala which allows its owner to control Simon Garth. However, before Bliss lost the amulet, he sent one final psychic instruction to the zombie, awakening Garth from his still-fresh grave. Then, unable to resist its pull, the zombie begins walking toward the amulet and its new master. The hired goons, now unmasked, deliver the amulet to Mr. Six, who promptly rewards them by having them executed. Meanwhile, Philip, Jean, and Steve recover from the fight. But Philip is unable to convince the young men of the power held within the stolen amulet. As they return to the diner, Simon Garth continues his trek through the city in search of the amulet's new owner. However, the spell of the amulet is briefly broken when the zombie sees a building owned by Garwood Industries, the coffee company Simon Garth owned in his previous life. The zombie is drawn to the building by memory or perhaps just instinct. He climbs the fence, despite its electric current, and as the alarm blares, Garth returns to his old office and sits at his desk. Just then, security arrives to deal with the intruder. The zombie tosses them aside, but doesn't kill them. Garth then dives out the window and falls five stories to the ground below. The guards continue firing at the zombie, but those wounds, along with his others, heal quickly as he once again shambles in the direction of the amulet. Elsewhere, Mr. Six has gone to an apparently condemned warehouse, secretly the headquarters of his employer, Papa Shorty, who is currently presiding over an erotic voodoo ceremony. While Papa Shorty and Mr. Six celebrate their impending domination over New Orleans, Six's chauffeur, Robert, becomes increasingly uneasy with this transition from organized crime to voodoo. As a demonstration of his power, Papa Shorty removes his cloak, revealing that he has no legs, and is able to move about thanks to his mystic powers. He also reveals that Mr. Six has recommended Robert for membership in the voodoo cult. The initiation ritual commences, and Lois, Mr. Six's mistress and Philip Bliss's ex-wife, takes her place at the altar to serve as the receptacle of blood. Robert is understandably freaked out by every single bit of this, and he runs away. Mr. Six and the floating Papa Shorty give chase, but Robert ends up running directly into the zombie. Papa Shorty, seeing the amulet's mate around Garth's neck, commands him to kill Robert. Back at the diner, 
Philip Bliss tells the full story of his divorce to his friends. In fact, Lois didn't just leave him because of her affair with Mr. Six, but also because she had joined Papa Shorty's voodoo cult. The group agree to accompany Philip to the voodoo palace, although they are still skeptical. At the palace, Papa Shorty has arranged a wrestling match of sorts between Simon Garth and the newly zombified Robert. Garth dispatches his opponent quickly, and the noise masks the sound of Philip and his friends breaking into the warehouse. Unfortunately, Phil, Phil is distracted by the sight of Lois, and he gives away their position. At the instruction of Papa Shorty, Simon Garth turns on the group and kills Phil. Steve and Jean flee, but in the commotion, Papa Shorty drops the amulet. Suddenly free, Garth turns on the voodoo master and burns him to death. As the other cultists run from the scene, Simon Garth slowly walks away. There's a lot going on here. This story was a hefty boy. It, it's long. It's this... This, what, 26 pages? I'm honestly shocked there's more than this one story in the magazine, because it's huge. Um, yeah. It, yeah. It's yeah. a comic's worth. It's a uh, whole comic's worth. And, you know, it's got some interesting moments. I feel like the most Steve Gerber part of the story is when Garth goes back to his office. That's the kind of, like, ironic twist that Steve Gerber is likely to do, you know? Uh, the zombie being distracted by memories of his past life and, and exploring the, the old office and the warehouse. That feels very Steve Gerber to me. I just, you know, usually we do get, like, a comic worth of zombie material in the Tales of Zombies. It's just often it's split up. This feels like it should have been. Like, I feel like... Right. The break should have been uh, when um, the zombie, may, either before or after the zombie encounters the warehouse. I feel like, honestly, I feel like it should be like the Papa Shorty reveal. Because that's a big enough reveal, I think, that is really underplayed here. Yeah. Where it kind of should have been a bigger reveal. That the voodoo, so, this the guy's voodoo yeah, is so powerful, yeah. he could walk around without legs. Yeah, but it does feel like it should have been two stories in the mag. Or the death of Robert. I don't know. Yeah. And then and then it resumes with them amping up the fight for between Robert mm -hmm. and Garth. And uh uh speaking of Robert, he's right. That is one hundred percent an orgy in that in that splash page. Yeah, it, it is. I mean I, I was kinda shocked at it when I saw it and like <laughs> <laughs> okay, Marvel. Just going for it, I see. And you could tell that all the clothing in that shot was added after the fact. Like it, it, because it, it, it's it was added in the inking. You can tell yes. that it was added in the inking. Yes. The, but the artist is like, you know what? I'm just gonna submit it like this and they can deal with it. <laughs> well, uh, it, the artist, well, and Marco Marcos inked himself, so he was the one who also had to fix it. So. <laughs> yeah. Just, yeah. Also, okay. I, I, we may have talked about this before because these characters have shown up before, but I do wonder if Steve and Gene are meant to remind us of anybody currently working in the bullpen. <laughs> well, they're kind of they're kind of d bags. Let's be honest. They are, like, but like we're 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 going to stalk this homeless man so we can see where he lives. True. Yeah, like, but it's also like the mid seventies, like. What else are you going to do for entertainment? They don't have Twitter. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's, it's a uh. it's sort of a weird meandering story, which is part of why the summary is so long because 
the zombie spends so much of it wandering around, and the narrative yeah. sort of wanders yes. with him. And yeah, I really enjoyed it. It's fun. <laughs> so. it's, yeah, the, the zombie stories have continued to be pretty consistent in quality. You know, like, we haven't hit necessarily the highs of, say, the best of Tomb of Dracula, but we've never really had any super low lows. No. Like, it's pretty, pretty consistent. No, well, at least not in the Simon Garth stuff. Right, right. And, uh, and the, the Pablo Marcos art is very good. Uh, that opening splash with the, the zombie standing in front of the open grave is, is awesome. Uh, ditto the, the sort of sequential page of, uh, Simon emerging from the grave. Mm-hmm. That's a really good page. I mean, you know, we make fun of the orgy page, but the orgy page is really well done Oh, the as composition well, so. of that's great. It's, you know, it, it looks like it could be like the cover to the kind of like old horror movie VHS box that I would not be Ooh, allowed to check yeah. out as a kid. Okay. I was going to say it, looked like, it look, looks like it should have been a splash page, but no, that's good too. Well, that too. I mean, we've, it, it almost is. Like, you've got a few panels sort mm-hmm. of around it, but it, but it's, it's well, functionally say, It should splash. be almost a double page p- splash because I feel like... Oh, yeah. like Oh, like a yeah. full spread. Yeah, Just yeah, yeah. Good stuff. Very good. Uh, the visuals really make this story work. Um, and, you know, if I have a complaint, it's that... And I have a feeling this is going to continue to be a thing with the zombie is that once again, we sort of end up at square one with the zombie wandering aimlessly yes. and the amulet lost. Like that that's happened several times over now and I feel like it's just going to keep happening. And that just feels like an unfortunate narrative. I kind of feel bad on. for Philip. Um, Philip did not deserve his no. death. Well, I don't know. He did sick a zombie on an yeah, entire courtroom full of people. I thought for sure that would be the reason, like, it'd be like a... Like, the cops would come for yeah. him, right? Like, everybody but saw him there. He, got, he gets redeemed or humanized in this story, and then he dies. So. Yeah. Yeah. But Yay! Steve and Gene make it out alive. Home, <laughs> home but, yeah, population I, I don't... New Orleans, look mm-hmm. out. Huh. Uh... But yeah, I uh, I don't have a whole lot else on this one really. No. Like, like it was fine. It was good. It it was it was a solid Simon Garth zombie story. Um, looking further in the magazine, uh, we've got the the mail page, uh, which has become a thing. The letters column, uh, mails to the zombie, uh, which that pun seems a little forced, <laughs> but I'll allow it. Uh, only thing that I really noted in the the letter column is. Uh, Marvel does acknowledge something that we've talked about before that, and this is a direct quote from their response to someone's letter it's always seemed to us that Simon Garth, or what's left of him inhabits our world rather than the far-flung Marvel universe and yet, we have to admit that Brother Voodoo, not to mention Doctor Strange and the Man-Thing might be able to lead everybody's favorite dead body down some very interesting storylines. So right now Marvel is considering Simon Garth separate from Marvel Universe, but they're leaving the door open to incorporate him at some point. I mean, Simon Garth appeared in Dracula Lives. He did. And 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 Dracula has appeared with Werewolf, and Werewolf has appeared with Spider-Man, and therefore they're all in the Marvel Universe. <laughs> like yes. this is this is the 70s Marvel version of of the Kevin Bacon game, right? Like <laughs> how many <laughs> how many moves does it take to get to Spider-Man? <laughs> And usually it's very few. <laughs> uh, 
so so that's it uh, with with the mail column. I think uh, there's a, a movie review by Doug Munch about uh, White Zombie, which is the mm-hmm. Bela Lugosi zombie movie from the 1930s. Uh, Classic. Yeah, it, it's underrated. I think. Uh, because it's not a universal movie, not as many people watch it, I think. Uh, but it feels a lot like a universal horror movie. Mainly because Lugosi's there, uh, the makeup effects were by Jack Pierce, who did the Karloff Frankenstein and the Lon Chaney Wolfman. Um, part of the problem, though, was just it was a difficult movie to watch for a long time. Not because of scarcity. Like, it's public domain, so you can find it for free on the internet. But for a long time the quality of those public domain transfers were so bad that both the video and the audio made it nearly unwatchable. Um, But that's mostly been fixed. There's a very good uh, high-definition version that's been put out by Kino Lorber. You can get it on Blu-ray. If you got access to Canopy, I think it's on Canopy right now. Um, So it's easier to watch than it's ever been. But but it's one that more people should watch because it really is uh, a classic of the sort of traditional voodoo version of zombie horror. Uh, and, and that's, I mean, Munch basically just writes about how it's an underrated movie. Uh, there's also a prose story by Chris Claremont, uh, part two of With De- With Dawn Comes Death. Uh, we skipped part one of this back in episode 44, so I'm going to skip part two since we didn't talk about the first part. Sounds right. Uh, there's also uh, a prose piece, Brother Voodoo Lives Again. Uh, which is basically just hyping up that Brother Voodoo will be joining this magazine in the near future. Uh, yep. So it gives you a brief publication history, which is sort of a recap of the introducing Brother Voodoo article that was done in a previous issue. <laughs> uh, all all yeah. I can really say about it is uh, you always dig that uh, Gene Colon art. Yeah. There's some great yeah. uh, Gene Colon uh, drawings of Brother Voodoo in that article, and that's really the reason to even look at it. There you go. Our next story up is Voodoo War, written by Tony Isabella, art by Sid Shores and Dick Ayers, and inks by Mike Esposito. So we've got sort of a Hatfield and McCoy situation with Mike Fairbanks, a cattle farmer, accusing a Haitian farmer named Ramon Latrue of using voodoo to poison his cattle. Um, and, and Fairbanks thinks this because Latrue's son, who was previously hanged, for being accused of stealing from Fairbanks. So this is, again, a feud that's been going on a while. Uh, Before the fight can really become fatal, uh, they're broken up, uh, pulled away by by their uh, sort of subordinates, and Latrue goes home to his wife, and they discuss using voodoo uh, to to target uh, his rival. Meanwhile, Fairbanks, secretly coveting Latrue's grazing land, uh, visits a woman named Mama de Sui, uh, which Fairbanks has apparently brought in this woman from Haiti specifically to perform a ritual uh, to, to target Latrue. Uh, but Fairbanks gets gets impatient with all this. He interrupts her, demands that she goes faster, uh, and it doesn't work. Uh, the spell is not powerful enough. So Fairbanks shoves her aside and demands that instead of doing the spell herself, she teach him to practice voodoo because that's going to work out better. Uh, but when he returns home, he finds that his daughter Amy, um, who he thinks uh, Latrue's son was in love with, has died. And that's because of the voodoo spell that uh, Latrue and his wife have cast. 
Um, and and uh, Latru insists they begin the next phase of the revenge immediately, that they do another voodoo spell. But his wife objects. So just like Fairbanks, Latru says that he'll just do it himself. Um, so the rest of the story is basically these two men casting voodoo spell after voodoo spell on each other, killing everything around them, bringing blight and fire and destruction to the land until only they are left, uh, because hatred is all that they have left. And the, and the voodoo gods laugh. Is it just me, or do you look at these last few panels in this one and just think to yourself, it's just a scratch? <laughs> it, it like, is. they're ripping they're yeah. ripping arms off the voodoo dolls, and of course, correspondingly, arms and legs are falling off the person, and it's just like... But seemingly without blood loss. Yeah, th- that fight's gonna be over quick. Right. Uh, it's just... It, this is sort of silly. Um, I applaud the high concept of trying to do a voodoo western like that's an interesting idea i don't know that they had the pages to really pull it off no like a lot of this kind of gets like glossed over like the hanging of the sun right like that could be like there were whole issues of storytelling that were just like one panel of sides yep just mm. i could see this as a whole western movie though oh, like yeah. a like a spaghetti voodoo western, mm-hmm. or even That'd be good. or even one of the like more noirish kind of westerns with lots of shadows and stuff. Yeah, I so mean, it points for a good idea, but the execution doesn't quite work. No, just like too much gets glo- just glossed over. Yeah, yeah. So I don't have much else to say about it. It's it is what it is. Um, the art is fine, I guess. Yeah. It's it, fine. Yeah, it, it because it's so short, because it's so compressed, it ends up feeling very much in the style of like a fifties horror anthology story. You also have Dick Ayers doing the artwork, which yeah, alongside yeah. Sid Shores, and I'm not sure what the arrangement was there. I don't know if some pages were one, some pages were the other, or if one had started it and the other had to pick it up and finish it. it it's not clear, but they both get credit. Yeah, but like. I'm not too familiar with Sid Shore's stuff, but I know, like, Dick Ayers' stuff lends it to that kind of 1950s comic look. Yeah, really does. And and the, the figures, the uh, the faces very much have... And the inking is probably accentuating this, too. It has uh, sort of a 50s style of inking, sort of a, a thick line, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's not great, but it's not... It didn't make me mad. Like, it's not a bad story. It's just... The, the premise, because the premise is not executed as well as it could have been, it's disappointing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's go ahead and look at the, uh, the last story in this mag, and that's Death's Bleak Birth, written by Doug Munch, uh, art by Frank Springer, who is inking himself. And this one's short and sweet. A pair of criminals attack Professor Cochran, who had recently been publicized as having made this discovery that would lead to great wealth and power. And so they're there to steal whatever this valuable discovery is. In their fight, the professor dies. And after the funeral, the criminals return to ransack the lab, looking for any clues to what the professor might have discovered. They find notes labeled Project Afterlife, but Cochrane's widow interrupts them, and to escape, they end up killing her. Next, they visit Cochrane's grave and recite the incantations from the Project Afterlife folder. And a decaying Professor Cochran emerges from the ground and mocks them. 
like utterly makes fun of them because the secret of Project Afterlife is that the resurrection comes with a cost. The life of one person made eternal. The life of one person is made eternal, but it consumes the life force of the person who recites the incantation. And one of the burglars drops dead immediately. Then Cochran kills the other, and he returns home, finds his wife dead, and uh, in sort of sorrow for losing his wife, he recites the incantation himself, giving up his own immortality to resurrect his wife. I mean. It's fun. Yeah, it, it, it's it, it's got a couple fun twists. Um, I I didn't see the the life for a life part coming. I thought he would just come back and kill both burglars. Yes. Uh, so that that was a clever twist. It, again, I, I said the other one was like a fifties anthology story. This one is a hundred percent a fifties anthology story. I don't I don't hate it though. No. Like no. It it it's definitely better than Voodoo War. Yes, it is better than Voodoo War. It, it knows exactly what kind of story it is and is just leaning into that as hard as it can. Yeah, it's meant to be a short, sweet little thing. It doesn't feel like Voodoo War, which, again, feels like it needed more page space. Exactly, exactly. This this did not need a panel more than what it got. Nope. Um, nope. I, I don't, I'm not crazy about the art. in like. There, there's whole sections where the background is just blank white, and that's not great. S- Springer can be hard sometimes to appreciate. Like, I know this from reading his Invader stuff. Okay. Like, the figure work is good, but the, the backgrounds are just really sparse. Like, with Springer's stuff, it is it is kind of like a cartoonish almost style to it. Mm. And, like, his Invader's work, you have to be reading a few issues before you get into the groove of it. And you're like, okay, I can deal with this. And then you start to appreciate it. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, it's, I, I kind of like to imagine that, uh, at least in my head canon, Project Afterlife was happening concurrently with Ted Salas's experiments. <laughs> like just a colleague of Ted Salas? Right. Like they're all kind of working on these, uh, these, uh, competing super soldier type formulas or something. <laughs> all the cool names. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean that, and that basically does it for Tales of the Zombie. Um, I, I feel like that, that that super-sized Simon Garth story overshadows everything else in the magazine. Yeah, it, like, it really does. Like, I mean, like nothing this. else is remotely as memorable as that. No. And boy, is it memorable. Yeah, well, I mean, again, those splash pages are just so gorgeous and so evocative. Like, we, didn't even, we didn't even talk about it in, in our summary of it, but <coughs> the way that the zombie kills Philip... Just like bonk on the head. Oh yeah, yeah. It's like, oh man. Yeah, it's got some really great uh, action beats, which I usually don't talk about a whole lot in in the horror comics, but it really does. Uh, also, the way he uh, sort of kills uh, the the zombified Robert, like he picks him up by the leg and swings him and bashes him head first into a brick wall. So there's a YouTube series that I like a lot, and you've probably seen it as well. Um, Dead meets the kill count. Yes, yes. And I, I've been because I've been reading um, Chris Lake memories, mm-hmm. and as as I've been going through the, the sections for the movies, I've been going back and watching the kill count videos for the movies, mm-hmm. just to get an idea of the the, of the kills. And th- I kind of was doing that tally in my head the whole time during the Tales <laughs> of the Zombie movie, like don't clocked on the head by a zombie. 
thrown into a giant brazier by zombie. Yeah, this one just, I think probably has just not even just from the zombie, but in in general, this probably has the highest death count of any of the zombie stories so far. Uh, yeah, because we've got uh, we've got the burglars that get executed by Mister Six. Uh, we've got uh, Robert who gets killed twice by the zombie. Like he gets killed, resurrected, and Oof. killed again. Uh, we've got. I think that both of those count. Oh, I, I, I think so. Um, he doesn't kill the guards at the warehouse, but he definitely beats them up a lot. <laughs> yep. Uh, and then we've got uh, the mayhem when the zombie runs amok in the the during the voodoo ritual. Yeah. So like, it's a it's an incredibly violent story. And the art captures that violence beautifully. I don't know about you, but but really, the standout of this magazine is that zombie story. And and oh yeah, and its art in particular, because like we said, the story kind of wanders all over the place. Uh, it's got some satisfying moments, but really, it's the art that that sells that story. I tell you, man, it's that Steve Gerber goodness. And <laughs> speaking of Steve Gerber goodness, I think it's time for us to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back. With Man-Thing, number five. Do you believe in the devil? Throughout history, people have claimed to have seen the devil. In 1692, he revealed himself to the women of Salem. And in 1921, bootleggers in Minnesota claimed to have seen him dancing on mischief night. But the devil doesn't dance alone. He has his followers, his conspirators, his cults. Coming to the Cinebumps Network this October. A new podcast which investigates crimes committed in the name of Satan. Where do they come from? Why are they here? Why clowns? You'll laugh your head off. Killer clowns from outer space. It's crazy. Rated PG-13. Starts Friday, May 20th at a theater near you. Welcome back to Believers. Our last comic for the episode is Man-Thing. Number five, Night of the Laughing Dead. Cover date on this one, of course, is May 1974. Writer is Steve Gerber. Artist is Mike Plug. Inker is Frank Caramonte. Letterer is Artie Simic. Colorist is Linda Lesman. Editor is Roy Thomas. The creature known as Man-Thing is roused from the melodramatic monologuing of the narrator by the sound of a gunshot ringing across the swamp. The creature finds the body of a clown lying on the shore, dead from a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. Something within the creature compels it to give the dead jester a proper burial, and the creature takes the clown in its arms and goes to find a suitable place for a grave within the swamp. Meanwhile, in a seedy Citrusville motel, Richard Rory and Ruth Hart are being built by a surly desk clerk who doesn't like Rory's long-haired college boy looks. Bad news for you, Trey. Also staying in the motel is a traveling carnival, and Ruth and Rory overhear a pretty young trapeze artist telling the carnival's owner, Mr. Garvey, that their clown has gone missing. 
Mr. Garvey seems nonplussed by this and backhands the girl when she tries to argue with him. Rory jumps in to defend the girl, but is then pummeled by the carnival's strongman, Trog, the world's strongest man. Instead, Ruth and Rory take the girl, Ayla, with them in their van to look for her clown friend in the swamp. Mr. Garvey and Trog follow in a truck. The three young people quickly find the clown, Daryl, sitting by the side of Swamp, but when Ayla tries to call him, he does not respond, simply taking a bow and walking into the swamp. The trio follow. Meanwhile, Mr. Garvey and Trog also encounter a clown standing in the middle of the road. Trog swears to avoid hitting the pantomime, instead crashing into a tree, killing Mr. Garvey instantly. Trog crawls out from the wreckage, swearing vengeance on the still silent clown, who dances away into the swamp. Deeper in the swamp, Ruth, Rory, and Ayla come upon the Man-Thing and the corpse of Daryl. Thinking at first that the Man-Thing has slain the Harlequin, Rory chases away for Branch, but after discovering the gunshot wound, realizes that this is not the case. Then the trio are come upon by Trog, who believes the clown to be playing dead to escape death at the strongman's fist. Rory tries to stop Trog from molesting the, ca the cadaver and is rewarded with a punch to the gut for his troubles, spurring the Man-Thing to intercede on, the young on his young friend's behalf. The two giant brutes belt on each other until finally the monstrous Man-Muck stands triumphant. Just then, however, a skeletal specter in patchwork rises from the corpse of Daryl and announces that now is a time for the show to start. So I, I guess it goes without saying that this is a weird one. Yeah. <laughs> Just a bit. But I also think it, it must be said that I am so happy to have Mike Plug drawing Man-Thing. <laughs> yeah. Like, Gerber Plug is like a dream team. <laughs> it, it, it really is. Just like, yes, please. Like, give me more of that all the time. Uh... It's great. Uh, starting with that first page of the man thing gradually emerging uh, from the swamp, like coming right at you. That's great. It is. It really is. I mean, nothing. I think like the previous artist Val Myrick, right? Uh, yes, yes. Myrick yeah, was the the previous issues. Nothing wrong with Myrick. Nothing at no. all. But man, this is some interesting plug artwork we've even got one of his signature montage spreads on pages six and seven yep yep kind of going over ted salas's past and flashback it's great it's if it's everything i missed about plug <laughs> like all now, in one issue we also have one of plug's signature monster men <laughs> fighting the protagonist yes yes uh, something I didn't miss quite as much for, about Plug. Well, you know what he reminds me of? He reminds me of Rondo Hatton. Yes, I had the same thought. Uh, I had the exact same thought. If you're not familiar with Rondo Hatton, uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000 episode The Brute Man. That was one of his uh, sort of starring monster roles. Rondo Hatton had a, a medical condition that, that caused some, some uh, variations in his appearance that made him look what Universal Studios considered to be monstrous. And, and yes. so and so they would cast him because they didn't have to hire anyone to do makeup. Yes. Um, also, if you're not familiar with the actual Rondo Hatton movies, uh, if you've watched Disney's The Rocketeer... 
I was about to point it out. Yeah. Uh, the the main like muscle thug in the Rocketeer is wearing Rick Baker designed makeup designed to look like Rondo Hatton. Yes, exactly. Like Rondo Hatton. It's just it's it's just so good. And 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 this this uh, strong man is definitely in the mold of a Rondo Hatton. Yes, yes, he is. It's like in a Rocketeer too. He's designed to look exactly. Yeah. Like Rondo, like like Hatton. not even homage. Like they straight up took a photograph of Rondo Hatton and said, "Make this." Yes. Well, and again, Which... because it's set in that time period when Rondo Hatton was making movies, like it makes sense. It does. I I, I enjoyed it. Like, and he's he's actually in the Dave Stevens comic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the character he's in the Dave Stevens comic, and then um, they just exactly translated it into the into the movie. I'm like, wow, it's great. It's great. It, it is. Honestly, one of uh, Rick Baker's most underrated makeup jobs. Because people always talk about the, the creature effects and stuff. But What award is it that's the, that's the Rondos? Oh, yeah, yeah, that That's uh, the annual uh, uh, awards for, uh, like, uh, it, it's horror web and periodical publishing. So it's for horror magazines, horror websites, stuff like that. Yeah. And it happens every year, the Rondo Hatton Awards, uh, and they they do everything from like best cover to best interview to all kinds of stuff. I I usually vote in them. Uh, I I've got an account with with the the guy who runs it so that I can submit ballots. But uh, but yeah, the Rondo Hatton has continued to have a presence in horror and genre stuff well beyond his limited filmography. Yeah, but. It's like back to this very weird story, right? <laughs> so, um, something unusual about the story is we're apparently supposed to feel sympathy for a clown, right? Something unusual <laughs> in horror fiction, which yeah. Daryl is a fairly sad sack figure. He is, he is, and again, but, this this feels very much in the Gerber mold of like off the wall storytelling of. I'm going to introduce a clown character, but he's going to be the most depressed clown ever. Yes. And I actually really like the skeletal version of Daryl that we meet on the last page. Yeah. Yeah. The the sort of ghostly, creepy version. It Honestly, this comic, even though it's Marvel, the thing it kept reminding me of was DC's Dead Man. <laughs> like I kept getting a like a Dead Man, like DC horror vibe. From from this story, well, you mentioned before that it's almost not a man thing story. It, I mean, it, it is technically a man thing story in that he shows up occasionally. Yes, and he shows up to fight the strong man. Yes, but like, but you could have the story of Richard Rory and the carnival and the dead clown without man thing there, and it wouldn't really change that story a whole lot. No. Uh, unless the only thing I can think of is if somehow the clown's ability to emerge as a ghost is somehow related to the Nexus. That would make sense. That would make sense. The the weird nature of the Nexus right. means this guy comes out. That make that yeah, that, that does actually make sense. That's that's my best guess for how this continues to be a man thing story. <laughs> uh and it, I, I do I will say, um, I, I still kind of miss our previous supporting cast. Yes, 
I'm wondering where they are right now. Right. Because like I know they come issue, back. Every issue, I wonder where they are right now. Which is not a slight on the current supporting cast. Richard Rory is fine. I mean... Yeah. Roy Thomas stand-in that he is. Uh, more of a Gerber stand-in, I think. Really? Okay. Yeah. Like, basically for a while, Gerber is the only one who writes Richard Rory. And he's going to move from Gerber book to Gerber book. Oh. So he starts out in Man-Thing. He's going to show up in Gerber's Daredevil. He's going to show up in Gerber's Iron Man Annual. He's going to show up in Omega the Unknown. And it's only after that that he starts appearing in other people's books. Okay. Okay. Interesting. And he eventually becomes, like, uh, a She-Hulk supporting character. Hmm. So, yeah. Uh, But yeah, Richard Rory was sort of a cutout for Gerber himself, for whatever reason. Uh, Well, and and if you think about it, because Gerber Gerber had a similar background to, to Thomas. Like... Southern boy who was into comics and sci-fi stuff, uh, getting into the business. But it seems like Gerber is the one who had sort of the chip on his shoulder about, like, pushing back against the Southern prejudice against higher education. Mm-hmm. And so the thing, like, Richard Rory, in all of these stories, gets called a college boy as a pejorative. And I get the impression that happened to Steve Gerber a lot. Makes sense. <clears throat> so... But anyway, but Richard Rory is, he's a fine character. I've, he's grown on me. I didn't really care for him in his first appearance when his whole deal was I'm the guy with bad luck. Yes. That was kind of annoying, but he's become a more fleshed out character now and I like him. So I found a picture of 1970s Steve Gerber. Yeah. If you want to take a look here. Can you see that? Uh, yeah, that's, uh, I don't know why Richard Rory dyed his hair like that, but... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so there you go. Because that's basically Richard Rory is Steve Gerber with Roy Thomas's hair. <laughs> the blondes do have more fun. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, this is a fun issue. It's 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 a weird one. Like I say, there's not a lot of man thing. It's mostly character work with the the other characters. But yeah, but. Plug owns every panel of the Man Thing stuff. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, and the the fight between Man Thing and Trag is is pretty cool. It's not the most inventive action sequence we've seen, but it it, it it's good. I like the bit where Man Thing realizes that Trag is not afraid of him, and so he can't just burn his face. I like that Trag isn't afraid of him for one yeah. thing. Yeah. Like, Trag's, Trag's more intrigued that, hey, there's this guy who can actually fight me. Yeah. Like, like maybe we can do something like this for the carnival. Yeah. It's like, hey, this is this is interesting. Uh, I don't think there's I, any point where Trag like, thinks, I might die here. No. But I, but I like Man-Thing is sort of taken aback by that. It's like, wait a minute. My usual thing isn't working here. I need to nope. do something else. <laughs> beaten. And so, beaten. That, and so that's when he almost drowns Trag. Yep. Yep. <laughs> it's a good fight. It is. It is. And and I'm sure we'll see a little more of that conflict next time because Trag is still there. Like in the final panel, he is gradually pulling himself out of the water. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a beat to be continued. And yeah. I'm excited. Because <laughs> yeah, it can only get weirder from here. We've got a weird man thing ghost story. Whatever that is. <laughs> Clown ghosts. 
clown ghost. Which makes it that's ten terrifying. times weirder. The idea of a of a clown that's also a ghost is like that is horrifying to me. There is a movie, and I can't remember the name of it, but it's like a clown comes back to take to kill the children of some cl- townspeople who killed it. Mm-hmm. Kind of like, kind of in the Freddy Krueger model. Okay. But he's a ghost of a clown who comes back for the children. Hmm. And I can't think of the name of it. And, like, I am actually generally a fan of clowns. Like, I, I, I enjoy, like, clown performers in circus acts and things. Like, I, I grew up going to the circus as a kid, so that's, that's a thing I enjoy. But creepy clowns are just horrifying. When when was the when was that movie you were talking about? Like when did it come out? Is it? No, I don't think it's Stitches. It might have been night two thousands clown. Okay, that one that one I've heard of. Um, oh yeah, clown. Uh, is that the one where the guy like is possessed by a demon that's turning him into like an evil clown or something? Okay, there's also Stitches, which clown comes back from the dead to wreak revenge from twenty twelve. Okay. So. So the, the 2014 one is not so much a, a clown ghost as a demon that's turning a guy into a clown. Okay. Um, although, fun fact, Clown 2014 is directed by John Watts, who directed Spider-Man Homecoming and Far From Home. Oh, that's interesting. That is very interesting. Um, but, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I remember Clown. Because that was the one where it started out as a fake trailer. Like, they put out the trailer on YouTube uh, for a movie that didn't exist. Uh, and in the fake trailer, it listed Eli Roth as a producer, even though Eli Roth had nothing to do with it. And Eli Roth thought that that move was just so ballsy <laughs> that he signed on to produce it. <laughs> That's one way to do it. That, that, that trick will never work again. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> because this was when... It was after... Uh, this was in like the early 2010s and so like the movie Grindhouse had sort of popularized people doing fake trailers for things mm-hmm. and and so they uh, John Watts and his collaborator Christopher Ford made a fake trailer for a horror movie about a guy turning into a clown and they just listed Eli Roth as the producer and then they got Eli Roth <laughs> so Stitches um, the plot concerns a birthday clown returning from the dead to exact revenge upon a boy and a group of children slash teenagers who contribute to his death? So that sounds like that sounds like the one you. Okay, saw. all right. <laughs> uh, that one I've not seen though. Um, sounds interesting. Interesting is one word for it. I mean, <laughs> I you know I still haven't got around to watching Killer Clowns from Outer Space. So, oh, I love Killer Clowns. Now that one's not even really a horror movie. I need to. That one's more of a spoof. It's 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 on my it's on my list for um, thirty one days of horror. It's a great, like, Halloween season movie, especially as sort of a palate cleanser if you've been watching any heavier stuff. It's good to throw on after that, because it's just light and fun, and it does all of the 80s horror tropes, but without being super grisly or depressing about it. Okay, to be fair, I actually have seen Killer Clowns from Outer Space. Um, Mm -hmm. It was on during a party... That my that, that it was on during a party that my parents were having at a beach house that we were um, renting. I think it was like a timeshare situation. Um, it was it was like a low country boil type of party. You know, make, make a big pile of mm-hmm. boil, and, the, and it was on in the bedroom. 
and I was like four. Okay. So, so you've not seen it. Yeah, I've saying. not seen it, but I, I remember it. <laughs> but the imagery has probably stuck yes, with Yes, like, you know, uh, cotton candy cocoons. Right, like. right. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, no, uh, last year uh, when I went to Universal Halloween Horror Nights, that was one of the houses, was Killer Clowns. Yeah. And it was great. Like, I saw that as a kid, I'm like, hmm, maybe horror films aren't for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and like, like, to a kid... That movie would probably be terrifying, but like watching it, having seen actual slasher movies, <laughs> it's way more silly than it is scary. Yeah, yeah, and you know, you're again, you're talking to a guy who's currently reading a history of Friday Thirteenth films, so I think it might be right, time right, to right. visit it. <laughs> Absolutely, it, 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 like I say, it's a lot of fun. Um, but yeah, it is sort of an interesting twist too, and I guess it's the seventies, so like. The clown as horror character is not a thing that's taken hold when this issue is coming out. No, no. Like, like that's a thing that comes later. That the Stephen King's it wouldn't be until the eighties. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the John Wayne Gacy stuff wouldn't be until later. Like all of the things that sort of created the creepy clown in popular culture really weren't there yet. Nope. And now clowns are ruined. Right. All, all you really have is the. Uh, the suppose the the apocryphal quote from Lon Chaney the uh, there's nothing scarier than a clown after midnight uh, which I don't I'm I'm not sure if it's ever been accurately attributed to him but everyone always attributes it to Lon Chaney but but aside from that you know you've got the Joker yeah and you've got uh, like the Last Laugh the movie that inspired the Joker mm-hmm. but that's about it like you don't get a whole lot of creepy clowns until later. So, so it's just interesting that in this monster comic, you've got a clown turning into a creepy ghost. Yeah. But, you know, I think that's enough clowning around from us. Uh, <laughs> I, think, I think once we start delving into the uh, depths of clown horror cinema, it right. might be time to close out this episode of Tomb of Ideas. Our 49th episode. 49th episode. Good. That means our next yeah. episode is our 50th episode. Yeah, that's a milestone. Wow. It yeah. is. Um, and uh, if you want to if you want to reach out to us before that episode, you really should. We would love to hear from you. Uh, if, it, if it's something that you want read on the air, we might be able to do that, depending on content. <laughs> yep. uh, and how, how can people get in touch with us, James? Well, they can write us at tombofideas at gmail.com. They can also reach out to us on Twitter. It's at Tomb of Ideas. There's also Facebook at facebook.com slash Tomb of Ideas. And gosh darn it, Trey, I feel like there's a network that we're a part of, that we're proud to be a part of, but I can't remember the name of it. Yeah, um, we are proud members of the Cinepunks podcast group, alongside such great shows as Black Sun Dispatches, which recently came back. Uh, Cinema Smorgasbord, Fat Girl Hacks, Horror Business. Uh, there's all kinds of great podcasts under the Cinepunks brand. Check out Cinepunks.com, where you can find our entire back catalog along with all those great shows. There's also tons of articles. There's Spotify playlists. We've got all kinds of stuff there on Cinepunks, uh, talking about movies, music, pop culture, um, so, so Cinepunks.com, that's Cinepunks with an X. Um, right. And of course, you can always find our back catalog also on iTunes, on Spotify, 
wherever you get your podcasts, we are probably there. Um, Speaking and, of Cinepunks, um, yeah. when this episode comes out, we they are ramping up for their big Cineween celebration. That's right. Um, so there's going to be lots of new spooky content up on the website all through October um, to help celebrate the spookiest of spooky seasons. Yeah, be on the lookout for that. And if you're not following the Cinepunks uh, Twitter account, uh, I'm pretty sure it's just at Cinepunks, uh, you should follow them as well because they always update with new episodes of all their shows and they'll be posting stuff throughout the Halloween season. So, once again, Cinepunks.com. That's Cinepunks with an X. Um, and... I think that's going to wrap things up. Uh, looking ahead, if you want to uh, do some homework and read for next time, our milestone 50th episode is going to be back to basics. We've got Tomb of Dracula number 20. We've got Werewolf by Night number 17. And we've got Marvel Spotlight featuring Son of Satan. And that's Marvel Spotlight number 15. Ooh. So look forward to um, Tomb Believers. Uh, we will see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You have been listening to the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. Until next time, Tomb Believers, Excelsior. <laughs>